Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Um, uh, We're going to be in Psalm 19 today if you have a Bible and you want to open that up. But I want to start off by asking a question. Uh, and say, have you ever had a worship song ruined for you before? Have you ever had a worship song ruined? I definitely have. That's why I brought it up. So student, I was a student minister at one point in a ministry called Young Life. We hung around with high school students quite a bit. And I have some beautiful, beautiful memories of getting up 6 a.m. in the morning, we would have 50 high school kids who would come together, pile in a living room, and we would just do Bible study, and we'd get out our songbooks, and we'd be singing worship songs, and like there would always be requests, right? And it was just a sweet, sweet time, and then they'd go off to school, kind of starting their day right. And uh, one, we would always ask requests, and one of the kids would always say, hey, hey, can you play We Bow Down? Play We Bow Down. Play that song. That's a great song. And if you don't know that song, I'm going to play it for you. Oh, look, there's a guitar. Wow. And there's a pick in my pocket. Oh, my goodness. And so if you don't know how this song goes, I'm not going to play the whole thing. We're just, but I'm going to play it in the same campy little rhythm that I got when I heard it the first time. You are Lord of creation and Lord of my life. Does that sound campy enough? Lord of the land and the seas. You were Lord of the heavens before there was time. Lord of our lords, you will be. Right? You get that? You've heard that one before? Isn't that lovely? Yes. Thank you very much. Super 90s campy rhythms. That was a song, I believe, by like Twyla Paris, I think. So anyway, we're playing that song, and I have like honestly sweet memories of it. It's like a real kind of pure and simple time, and the kids loved it even though it sounded like that, right? So, but many years later, I was in church, and they're still playing that song in the early 2000s. Don't know why, but they were, right? And I had this crazy Marine friend in the church that I was in at the time who was a little raw, kind of new to the faith, and he was really upset after a church service. He came up to me, and he was like, bro, what is with the weird music in this church? And I was like, what are you talking about? What weird music? He goes, that one song that we were singing. I was like, what song? He goes, the pirate song. I was like, what do you mean the pirate song? You are Lord of creation and Lord of my life, Lord of the land and the sea. And I was like, that is a pirate song, isn't it? It's 100%. Sounds like a pirate song. I was like, never again can I sing that song ever, ever. Sorry, Twyla Paris, wherever you are, right? But here's the point of it. Uh, whether a song has been ruined for you or not, it's not about the music, it's not about the melody. But the words of that song, I think, do endure. God is Lord of creation, and so therefore he's Lord 
of my life. That's kind of where Psalm 19 is going to start, with the sovereignty of God over the entire universe. And uh, Psalm 19 is an amazing psalm of David. It's very unique. A lot of the psalms as you go through have specific genres, right? They stick with one genre. That means like if it's a lament psalm, then it stays in that sort of dark key, you know, and, and, and the person's crying out and needs God and it stays that way the whole time. Or it's a wisdom psalm where it's kind of giving you wisdom for life and there's sort of singing about it. It stays in that key or a a praise song where it talks about God and how wonderful he is the whole time through. Well, Psalm 19 is actually a mixed genre song. It takes three different elements and it compiles it together, a thanksgiving song, a wisdom song, and a petitionary prayer and puts it all together in one. And it makes for a beautiful song, a beautiful poem. You can imagine David sitting under the stars out in the field in Bethlehem, strumming his instrument and singing this song. In fact, it's so beautiful that C.S. Lewis wrote down about Psalm 19. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in all the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the whole world. That's a big statement. And so as we go through, we want to see what C.S. Lewis saw in this. We want to not just read Psalm 19. We want to experience Psalm 19 and see the beautiful prayer and song that David, it came from his heart and he pours it out. So let's look through verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. So David starts off in this place where he's looking up at that night sky and he's just saying, it's like creation is crying out. It's disclaiming it. It's proclaiming a message. It's just shouting it out. And I I can't hear the words, but I can feel the song. I can see God's handiwork in everything he made and and just sitting under the sky, I I can see it. I can feel it. There's no words to this song, but somehow there's a tune and it's resonating with my heart and God is trying to communicate something to you and I. He's pouring forth that speech. He's pouring out speech to me and I want to hear it. Creation, you can't like talk about words when you talk about creation. If it's like a piece of art where you just have to let it wash over you and and you experience it and you just, art has no words, but you're like, wow, that that, that picture moves me. That picture, I'm experiencing it. That's what David is saying, Psalm 19, as he's pouring it out, he's saying, that's what creation does to me. And so for us this morning... When Christian artists have over time looked at creation, they have found that same inspiration and written various songs over many, many years. And I want you to just hear so we can experience the song, not just read the song, but experience the song, experience creation. Here's just three songs. The Lord of all creation, the water, earth, and sky. Are your tabernacle? Glory to the Lord on high, and God of wonders beyond all galaxies. You are holy, 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 holy,
That's just three songs over a couple hundred years. That first one, or the middle one there, was by Haydn, I think, 18, 17, 1800s. Uh, choral piece, he wrote several choral pieces with the same guy who did the Messiah, and they did it about the creation of the world. His crowning choral achievement, he wrote specifically around Psalm 19. Then you got that 90s in there. Did you catch that voice? The, the third day, that's where they mumbled instead of saying, and they all sound like Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, right? But it was cool. And that's my era, so I thought it was cool, right? And then, of course, you got Hillsong singing about, if all of creation will praise your name, I guess so will I. You know, a powerful point. The point of a Psalm 19 is don't just read it. You got to sing it. You got to experience it. You got to feel it because David says that day after day is pouring for a speech, night after night. It is revealing knowledge. Who is it revealing knowledge about? It's revealing knowledge about the artist. If you have a piece of art, you look to the artist behind that art to explain it, the God of creation. As Calvin said, that creation is the theater of God's glory. Jonathan Edwards said that the universe is just an explosion of God's glory for you and I to see and behold. The thing is, it's funny. Because I think if you and I looked at like something, say, Amazon right now, you look at the company Amazon, and I imagine you and I and, and many people that you know are like, man, that's... It's quite an operation. I mean, they got packages going everywhere around the world. They got, they got trucks going through the neighborhoods of everywhere. They're talking about using drones. What a system. What don't they sell? It seems like Amazon is everywhere. And man, that Jeff Bezos, he must be a really smart guy. How many of you would like to have a lunch to consult on your business? That Elon Musk guy has got an empire. Boy, I'd like to sit down. He must be a genius. Man, that Michelangelo who painted the Sistine Chapel, man, if I could like get an art class with that guy. And yet here's the thing. All of those people pair into comparison in the system you live in every single day. The system that is in you right now protecting you from disease. The system that is moving around in the cells inside of you. The system that is working even in the heat and even in the storms and even in the wind currents and everything around you. 365 every year. The sun coming up, the sun going down, the revolutions around the sun. All of that system is going on and we want to hang out with Jeff Bezos. That's a joke. God's system is way, way more advanced. It's way more amazing. And what that tells us is, is that as we talk about in this place, spending time with Jesus in the secret place, well, where isn't his secret place? His secret place apparently is creation that is pouring forth speech to you so you can hear his voice in every single way, all around you at every moment, all the time. And I don't know where that wonder went. I don't know if the science classes took it away. I don't know if, if we got caught up looking at how complicated the cool things that we can make are. But the wonder 
Creation is sending us a message. It's speaking to us, not in words, but man, when you sit on the edge of the Grand Canyon, when you sit at Artist's Point in the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone to see that tremendous waterfall and everybody wants to paint it, when you sit under the big sky, in big sky, Montana, or ride the Gallatin River and the fresh water that's there, there's a pastor named Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s. And when he would go out to preach, he would ride out into the countryside before he preached, and he would just take journals. He wrote them all down and called the shadow of divine things. Because for Jonathan Edwards, he saw God everywhere in nature. See, you and I may go out into nature, and we may see like maybe some comparisons we can make. We'd say, well, that that over there, though, that's kind of like what God was. Jonathan Edwards took it a step further. When he looked around at nature and what he saw, what he saw was not just, oh, that's kind of like God. He realized that that's a shadow of a divine thing. That if it's true that the creation was made to communicate about the artist, then we should see actually the artist everywhere because he put a message there for us. And so for Jonathan Edwards, he would look at a rose bush and he goes, I wonder why a rose bush looks the way that it does. Why is there a flower on a thorny branch? He said, I wonder if God had Jesus in mind. That Jesus had a crown of thorns on his head and he had to go through his crucifixion before his glorification in the beautiful flower that's at the end. That maybe that's the message. That maybe when you look at the sun, the sun is so bright and brilliant and then the moon is kind of dimmer. Why would that be? Well, in this psalm, he's going to say the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Well, if the sun is a bridegroom, then it's got to have a bride. Who's its bride? And Jonathan Edwards is like, that must be the church. The church is his bride. So maybe the moon is like the church and the sun is like the son of God, like Jesus. And maybe he put it that way, that the moon has no light in and of itself. It only reflects what the sun gives it and the brilliance that it gives it. Maybe that's why God set up the world to work the way that it did so you would learn about him. Not by chance, not by accident, not by good analogy or a clever sermon, but by design. The funny thing is, we know so much more than David knew at his time, don't we? And yet the wonder escapes us. Our friends at Google put together a video that I want you to see because, again, I feel like creation needs to be experienced, not just talked about. So take a look at this video if you've never seen it before.
Isn't that kind of a cool video? A universe out there and a universe just even inside the cells in our body. David had no idea all of that existed, yet he had more wonder than most of us. How can that be? How can that be that we know so much but seem to know so little and have so little respect for the genius of the creator to sit under a canopy of stars but then to have telescopes that go deep into those stars? And it moved David to song, to hear the music, to lean in to the speech. Now, David's going to move from that big picture of creation to focus on a specific aspect of that creation. So in verse 4, on the second half, he starts and he says, In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So why the sun? Why would David have decided out of all things in creation to focus in on the sun? Well, I think the reason why he did is because if you take a quick even just Google search, you will find that the sun has at least 150 deities, that's probably a, a low estimate, attributed just to the sun. And that's across Africa, America, Europe, Asia, and Oceania. 150 different tribes were so impressed by the sun that they actually worshipped it and named it after a god. And that is very common in the ancient world of David's time. And the sun is so powerful. It rides over the earth. It, it creates a lot of heat. Have we been experiencing the heat? Yes, and we know, we know this, right? And it's so powerful. It dominates the earth. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Nothing hidden from its sight. And so the ancient peoples revered it as a god. But here's what David says. God pitched a tent for the sun. It's a bridegroom, and you know what? It comes out when he says it, and it runs like his champion when he sends it, and it goes from one end to the other. So it's not a God. It actually obeys God. It's just one of his forces that he controls. There are no other gods because God stands over all of it, and if God stands over the sun, there's not another deity that stands against him. That's a powerful statement in the ancient world, and that should be a powerful statement in us. And I don't know what you're impressed about. I mean, right now, I'm kind of sick of the sun. I wish a cloud would block it, right, at this point. But think about this. I went and saw the movie Oppenheimer. This is not a spoiler. It's a historical movie. So I went and saw Oppenheimer, and Oppenheimer is about the guy who was the father of the atomic bomb. Now, throughout that film, you get some powerful impressions of the destructiveness of the power that was unleashed in the A-bomb. And just what they were trying to do is they were trying to split an atom and do what they call a fission with an atom to release its energy and the powerful destructive forces that it took all the greatest minds of the world to come up with. And you're sitting there and you're like, wow. And, and you see the mushroom clouds and you're like, Man, this is, this is powerful. Like, what can man do? Even Oppenheimer himself, when he first saw the first test of the atomic bomb, said, I have become death, destroyer of worlds. Quoting from a Hindu text. 
Did you know that in the sun, there's 15 billion nuclear explosions every single second? 15 billion as hydrogen compiles on itself to then form helium and release energy 15 billion times, releasing energy 15 billion nuclear explosions every single second, yet perfectly contained. And so in the movie, Oppenheimer thinks he has become death. He's a joke. He doesn't even know how to control it. They weren't even sure if they were going to destroy the entire earth the first time they set off the bomb. And here's God using the sun 94 million miles away to perfectly heat you on a nice summer day. Always contained by the force of gravity so it doesn't annihilate you or completely cook you. Bigger power than Oppenheimer could have ever dreamed and perfectly controlled. Now that's power. That's wisdom. You get the sense in the Oppenheimer film that has gone beyond our control and we live in fear of it ever since. But God's perfect reign over the sun, his perfect reign. We're just kids sitting in the dirt, playing with a bunch of sticks, still learning our ABCs, and God is making symphonies. And that should move us. The art reflects the artist. Creation is telling us something about God. It's a time and a place to sit down and just respond and worship and go, I got nothing here, God. What do you want to tell me? And so this beginning of Psalm 19 is telling us a few things about who God is. God is the God of order and not chaos. You get 365 days a year. Every fourth year, you get 366 days. Not by chance. Seems to happen on a regular basis. You get 28-day lunar cycles. Things tend to happen. Even Mufasa understands the circle of life, right? Now, here's the thing. Is your life in chaos? Are you out of control? Do you think this genius of the most genius system is trying to tell you something? As he speaks in the void of the chaos of creation and brings order to it, do you think maybe he could speak into your life and help you? And that's the next message I think creation is telling us, that God is in total control. There's nothing outside of his control. See, we tend to compartmentalize our lives, and we actually are acting almost like the polytheists back in the day where they had different gods for different aspects. Well, I have the God of church, and I don't swear in front of him, but then when I'm out in my normal work world, I swear in front of that God who dictates my work world God. And I got my work God, and then I got my family God. My family God's slightly nicer than the work God unless the kids really tick me off, and then it gets worse. It might be worse than work world, right? But we have different people for different scenarios. And what David is saying is God is God over all creation, so he's God over every aspect of your life, and nothing is hidden from him. If he is Lord of creation, then he is actually Lord over your life. And every aspect of you belongs to him and is a part of what he designed. And it's not a bad thing because creation is telling us that he's pouring forth speech. Well, who is he talking to? Who is the audience of creation? You are. You're his intended audience. 
for his glory and his beauty. That's why when you sit out in nature, it strikes a chord, doesn't it? When you get in, out in nature, even psychologists are saying tonight, you know, it'd be really great for your personal health if you walked out in nature more. And they don't even believe in God. Do you think maybe there's a design there, maybe a purpose there? This is where it gets more personal. My wife, Andrea, when she was out in Colorado uh, at, a, again, a Young Life camp, she had this lyric ringing in her ears that she was singing about, oh, God, uh, who, who made all these things? How is it you made the universe and yet you know my name? And, but she's sitting in the mountains of Colorado while she's thinking about this. And she's lost and she's confused in her life and she doesn't know whether she's coming or going. And then all of a sudden in those mountains with the God of creation, she's like, man, you built all of this and you know my name. I'm not alone anymore. You love me. Even if I feel right now my family doesn't. And she gave her heart and her life to Christ on that day. Creation is speaking. It's talking to you. The secret places around you all the time. And it's not just creation that's speaking. God didn't leave this all sort of up to an abstract art piece for you. He got really specific. And that's where David goes next. Look at verses 7 through 9. 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Now, I don't know about you. When I read a section of scripture like that, it sort of kind of washes over me really fast. But don't miss the repetitive rhythm. The law of the Lord is blank, and it benefits me blank over and over and over again. Now, why does it say it over and over and over again? Because if a Hebrew person wants you to get a point, he's going to say it over and over and over again. The hallmark of Hebrew rhetoric is repetition. That's why the Old Testament is repetitious, so you get the point. And because he's conducting a song, just like you don't just say to your wife or your girlfriend or whatever at the time, just one thing, well, you look really pretty today. Now, when you write like a love letter, you go into detail. And that's what David is doing. He's saying, hey, look, I see that you've made all of creation. It's pouring for a speech, but you didn't stop there. You didn't want to leave me guessing at life. So you wrote it down for me and you put it in a book. That's amazing. You wanted to make it really clear to me. And so just to slow myself down through this section, I put up my own version or translation. You can call it the message by Gavin if you want of each verse so you can kind of feel the points as we go through. We'll go line by line. So the first line, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. I phrase that God's Torah is totally complete and it turns you back to life. Because the Hebrew idea of perfect there isn't like perfect like in detail. What it is is that there's, you can't add anything to it. You wouldn't want to take it away. You don't put it alongside something. It has everything you need. Yes. And not only that, it refreshes the soul. You say, well, I don't normally think about the law like that. Well, the law is the only scripture David had. And at that point, it was written in his opinion by the finger of God. And so, again, he's amazed that God wants to communicate to him about the best way to live life. And he says that this law isn't here to hurt you. 
which is what most of our culture thinks, that the law is here to hurt you and take away your fun and, and, and ruin your life and just spoil all the good stuff. It's a killjoy. That's not what David says. It turns you actually back to life. It informs you of the best possible life you could live. But the culture disagrees. The culture doesn't say that the word is complete. The culture says the word is contemptible. Contemptible. The culture tells us that the Bible's rules, honestly, are oppressive and controlling. And that the scripture is just this old cultural relic of a bygone era. And honestly, if you want to live freely, you've got to break away from it and its norms. Actually, we have to progress beyond it. And to read the Bible is not progressive, you are regressive. But I'll be honest in my own testimony. Every time I've read the word, every time I've taken God out of his word to what his boundaries were, it has only worked out for good. And every time that I haven't, it has thrown me into chaos. When I was younger and there was a house in our neighborhood, it was being built up and everything like that. And one of my friends decided it would be clever to see what happens when a rock meets glass. And uh, they thought it would be fun to throw a rock through said window. And uh, they did. We were rascally kind of junior high, high school kids, right? And so we broke the window. And then naturally, since there was already an open way, we went inside. And so and while, once we were inside, there was all sorts of materials, wood and nails and things like that. And we were like, man, what a cool fort we could build in the woods with this, right? The idea passed. We went home. Everybody went to sleep. But that one guy held on to that idea who broke the window. And he woke us all up in the morning. He's like, let's go get the stuff so we can build our cool fort. And so we went back to the house, went inside the house, and we started unloading all of the wood and the materials into a secret location in the field. The only problem was the field wasn't so secret. Every house in the neighborhood faced this house. And so all morning long in broad daylight at 6 a.m., people were seeing us stealing this stuff. And so they all came from the houses yelling at us and descending on us almost at about the same time, and they had also called the police. Well, my buddies all booked it and ran. But at that moment, I felt conviction. And I just threw up my hands. I'm like, I'm guilty. I'll bring it back. I swear, I'll bring it back. And then I had to sit with Officer Lieutenant Lenny Jackson and explain the situation and tell my dad what happened. I may have ratted out my friends as well. <laughs> Point is, the word says, do not steal. Is that a good one? When you've been stolen from, it sure is. I was hurting those people in their home. I was hurting myself, honestly. That was a good one. That's not one I want to leave behind. Do not murder. We like that one? That one's good. What about some of the others? To love your neighbor like Christ loved you. To forgive your neighbor like Christ loved you. God's word is complete, not contemptible. Say that to your neighbor. God's word is complete, not contemptible. All right, let's go to the next one. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. 
God's written testimony stands the test of time. This is the Gavin version, allowing teachable people to become experts. Here in the Hebrew, this word simple is kind of negative. If you go into Proverbs, being simple is a bad thing. It means you're naive, you're easily taken in. But being simple in this psalm, in David's mind, is a good thing. Because when you're simple, you're open. You're open to being swayed. And who, if God is the one swaying you, that's a good thing. And so you can become an expert through God's written testimony that he put down for you because he didn't want you being guessing at life and not knowing where you're going so you could have order in chaos and he gave you the instruction manual. And so you don't have to be stuck being simple. And it's not culturally bound. It's where the expertise comes from and it stands the test of time. It's transcendent no matter what generation you're in. That's how God's word works. The culture tends to disagree. It says, honestly, the Bible just seems to be one choice among many. In fact, nothing really quite special. It's just a point in history. I don't know why you would settle on that one versus another. In fact, religion in general is like a bunch of ice cream flavors. You tell me you like Christianity, that's like telling me you like chocolate. I prefer vanilla. That's your truth. I got my truth. The problem is that David started his psalm in creation, saying that somebody stood apart over it and then gave us a word about it. That doesn't sound to be a very relevant thing that's only relevant to where we are in time. It sounds like it's transcendent, where it transcends time. And if you want to live wisely, wouldn't it make sense to get in tune with the one who made the earth? And he will give you the expertise to live. So God's word is not the truth, it's a truth. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's word is not a truth, it's the truth. All right, let's go to the next one. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. God's truth is 100% precise. This is my version. Your heart will resonate with it. See, the world wants to say that God's word is corrupt. It's got lots of errors of morality and, and just errors in the manuscripts, period. I don't have the time to go into it with you, but I'm here to tell you that the manuscript evidence of the scripture of which I had to study very deeply in, it is the most attested manuscript. You take for granted certain things in history that is based on far less evidence than we have for the scriptures. Even the Roman history you've all studied in your classes is based on very few manuscripts, and yet the Bible is attacked every single day for its corruptions. But in terms of morality, I feel like every culture on the earth really likes Jesus. Did you know Islam loves Jesus? Did you know Judaism? They kind of can argue with Jesus being the son of God, but they like what he has to teach. Everybody respects him. Even Gandhi said, you know what? That Jesus guy is really good. I just wish Christians were more like him. The point is, is that something resonates with you. Never has a book, for me, I don't know about you, but as I read it, balanced grace and justice, grace and truth. Kindness, but yet still holding to standards. The Bible does that in such a beautiful, amazing way. It's not just a flavor of the month. It's the creator's wisdom to you. Let's go to the next one. The precepts of the Lord are right. 
giving joy to the heart. Or we already did that one, right? That's the one we just did. Next one, sorry. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. God's commands are shiny and immaculate. The brightness helps you see the word world clearly. The culture wants to tell you that this is just a confusing place and you just kind of got to make up your own mind and there's nothing necessarily special about the Bible. It's just common. And maybe we agree with them. Maybe we have so many translations and so many books. It's still the bestseller year after year. That's a fact. No books outsells the Bible every single year. They just take it down from the sales stats. But do we read it? You know, my kids grew up and they would always tell me, Dad, I've, I've heard these stories. I know the Bible. I was like, you know the Bible? All right, tell me about the Bible. He goes, what do you want to know? Just give me any story they'd say. David and Goliath. Okay, David was a little dude and uh, he had faith in God and he beat a bigger dude and he did it with some stones. Okay, great. What about Jonah? Uh, Jonah, uh, he didn't really want to preach to people. So God swallowed him with a whale. The whale puked him up and then he preached. Boom. Give me another one. David says that God's commands are the brightness that sees our world clearly. Just knowing the details of those stories doesn't mean you know the Bible. You may have heard the story before, but have you used it to enlighten your eyes to see where you're going? It's not a book you read like any other book. It's a different kind of word. It's supposed to change the way you think, change the way you feel, change the way you act, and change the outcomes in your life if you let it. And it's because of all that that David is singing about it. He's like, it is so amazing that God gave this to us, that if your world is in chaos... If it's falling apart, if you're feeling pulled to the left or to the right, this can get you back on track. You're not meant to be left guessing at life. The creator just didn't leave you out there spinning. But the Bible stands out as that beacon of light, a light unto your path, a lamp unto your feet, as another psalm says. Well, David finishes up in a fury. So verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. When I think of the fear of the Lord, I think the singular focus on God brings us integrity. It has staying power. Next verse, the decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. God's judgments are always reliable. He considers every aspect, every single time. And then David finishes up this section. He says, all of these laws are more precious than gold. They're much more than pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb in verse 10, he says, and then verse 11, he says, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping with them, there is great reward. He says, man, do you understand what you have in here? I've got to sing about it. I've got to tell you the investment I've made. It's like gold. It is the treasure that you're looking for and your heart should treasure it. And it is so sweet that when you read it, it keeps you away from bitter places. It keeps you away from the bitterness of life if you let it. And it's so sweet, so devour it. Eat it fully and gobble it up because it will warn you when you need to be warned. It will guide you when you need to guide and it will give you great reward. That's why he's got to sing. 
He can't more highly recommend a book in his entire life. That's quite a recommendation. That's quite a review, would you say? Five stars. The point is, if God is speaking into the void of space and time, God is also speaking into the void in your life. And he's trying to give you direction. He doesn't want you to be confused. He wants you to have a clear path. He wants you to have his word. He's not trying to ruin your fun or ruin your freedom. He's trying to give you freedom. And he's trying to teach you that through his word, you can find life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not in America, but in his word. From the creator and the genius of the system himself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says it this way, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Deuteronomy 8.3 says that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the idea. Creation, pouring forth speech, God putting it in his word in specifics for us and us soaking it all in. So David is soaking all of that in. He's singing about all of that and he has a panic attack at the end of the psalm. Verses 12 through 14 says, oh my goodness, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sin that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock, my redeemer. He's saying, man, God, you have equipped us with everything we need. You painted a beautiful tapestry for us to just fall in love with you. You gave us specific words to guide us through the creation. I don't want to screw this up. Can you help me? And he asked for help in two specific areas. Verse 12, he says, help me with my hidden faults. What is a hidden fault? A hidden fault is sometimes meaning that you're the last to know about yourself. You don't even recognize your own voice on the voicemail, do you? Get in arguments with your family about how angry you were. They think you were really angry. You're like, I was just raising my voice a little bit. You may not even know what motivates you day to day. David is realistic about that. And he goes, I don't even know sometimes when I'm sinning or what's motivating me. And so God, when it comes to that stuff, he says in the Psalm, will you forgive me? I just need your grace for that stuff because I can't fix what I don't know. And I'm asking just for your help with those things. And God, by his word, will probably bring those things more to light in your life if you let it to cause less chaos in your life. But he also asks at the end, he says, God, help me with my willful sins. Now, these may be hidden as well, but hidden because you purposefully chose to hide them. Because you know you're doing something wrong and you're too embarrassed or don't want to get caught yet doing it. In regeneration, we have a line, we say, you're as sick as your secrets. And if you have a secret that you are purposefully keeping, it's probably a sickness in your life. And David is saying, when it comes to this kind of stuff, the willful sense, help it not rule over me. But don't we give ourselves to things that rule over us all the time? We know what alcohol does to us, but we just keep shoving it in. We know what drugs do to us, but we keep taking them. 
We know what pornography does, but we keep watching it. We do the things we're self-destructive people. Shopping, there you go. Sheila would like you to know shopping is hers. Good job, Sheila. <laughs> but what David is saying is, you know, when it comes to this stuff, God, just like Jesus asked me to pray, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. How often do you pray that? But the truth is, for many of us, when it comes to temptation, we want to taste it. We want to try it out. And we want to touch it without getting totally burned. But that's not how temptation works. And what it does on the backside is brings chaos into your life. And David's like, I want to live in tune with creation. I want to live according to his word. So God, you've got to help me. I don't want anything to rule over me except for you. You are Lord of creation. So be Lord of my life. Let me live in tune with your world. I don't want chaos. I am not an agent of chaos. I want some order in my life. And so the question is, do you want to get well? Psalm 19 says, I have a way for you, a song for you to sing. And the truth is, at the end of it, I want you to hear this, that worship leads to hearing God. Worship leads to hearing God. Hearing God leads to trusting God. And trusting God leads to healing from God. And I've seen that played out this week at 220 camp, which is an amazing time. I will tell you what, these students just jumped in and worshiped their guts out. I've never seen so much worship in a short amount of time. But what was interesting is they came hurting and confused in some ways. You couldn't tell that from the outside. But as they worshiped and the more they poured into their worship, they began to hear from God more clearly. Sometimes things for their friends. Sometimes things for, their se for themselves. And as the genius of creation, they put themselves under his tutelage and worshiped him. They heard from him. And then they began to heal. And then they shared that. I know I needed forgiveness. I know I'm depressed right now. I need God's love and he sees me even though my friends don't. That's the power of Psalm 19, following this progression. You put yourself in worship of the creator. And then you can hear the speech he's telling you, specifically in the word. To bring order out of chaos means you heal and you're living rightly in the world. Three thoughts for you as we close. Just to wrap up. God created the universe to tell you about him. The art reflects the artist. The art reflects the artist. So what do you do with art? You appreciate it. You fixate on it. You worship. If creation is singing, then so will you. So will I. Number two, scripture is the clarity we seek in a chaotic life and world. It's the clarity we seek. When you worship God, you're going to hear him more clearly. And he's going to help you. And the most tragic thing is a dusty Bible, honestly. Sitting there on the shelf, the genius of creation telling you how to live. And you read other things like social media and TikTok for hours. Where's the wonder? If you want to hear God, he is giving you his word. 
He's trying to communicate to you both in creation and as word to help you, to help you live. And then number three, pray to God regularly like David's doing here for God to clean out the chaos of your life and bring you in tune with the rest of his creation. God, help me with the things I can't see. Help me with the dumb ideas that I know I'm doing wrong but I'm fighting the urge inside me to do. God, that's how I can come together in creation. That's how I can live according to your design. And that's David's song over you and I this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you.